What's up, world? I am your host, Angelica Beener, and this is Milestones, a new podcast where each episode I am joined by a special guest to discuss a landmark album celebrating a milestone year. Now, if you checked out episode three, my special guest and I promised to come back to discuss today's album. And I am so grateful that with his very tightly packed schedule, he kept that promise. I am so excited that the brilliant and luminous seven-time Grammy-winning bassist and Newport Jazz Artistic Director Christian McBride is back on Milestones today to discuss none other than Marvin Gaye's What's Going On as we celebrate its 50th anniversary this week. Welcome back, Christian! Angelica, it's great to be back. Thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. So you have had a Marvin Gaye packed month. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I wonder if you would talk to me a little bit about all the things you've been doing this month in celebration of this brilliant landmark album, the album that Rolling Stone has now recognized as the greatest album of all time. Right, right. Well, I know they do that. uh, I think they do that poll every five years or so. So we'll see if they stick to it in five more years. How about that? <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's been, um, uh, it's been a wonderful um, last few weeks. Uh, the 92nd Street Y in New York City got in touch with me back in uh, I don't know, sometime toward the beginning of the year. And uh, they wanted to do a salute to Marvin Gaye's um, 50th anniversary of, of what's going on. And they asked if I would be the musical director. And uh, it's a it, it's a four-part series. Um, just a few days ago on Friday, May, I, I can't remember what date, what calendar date Friday was, but uh, the first part was a, uh, a pre-recorded concert. And I put together a band with Marcus Strickland, uh, David Gilmore on guitar, Christian Sands on keyboards, uh, Gabo Lugo on percussion and Billy Kilson on drums. And we played a handful of selections for what's going on. We didn't play the whole album, but we played like five songs from the album. And uh, we gave it, um, we played what's going on through a jazz lens. And uh, we still kept it funky, but um, we didn't have a, we didn't have a singer. So in, uh, 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 for, for all intents and purposes, Marcus Strickland, played the role of Marvin Gaye. And uh, the second part of this four-part series uh, just completed about 45 minutes ago, which you, my friend, were brilliant on. Uh, oh. We had a, oh man, yeah, it was great. We had a, a panel discussion on uh, what's going on. And we had uh, Stephen Reinecke, uh, the conductor of the New York Pops, um, uh, Nelson George, David Ritz, uh, yourself and none other than Jan Gay, Marvin's wife, and uh, everybody was just brilliant. And uh, in just a couple of days, the third part of this series will be uh, a Marvin Gay listening party. I put together uh, a playlist of you know like the essential Marvin Gay, and uh, so I'll be wearing my my DJ hat that day. And uh, I believe that's on June third. I believe it is. And um, the fourth and final installment of the tribute is a concert that uh, Ray Angry put together. Uh, I asked Ray to put a band together 
And uh, he's going to do sort of like a whole uh, Marvin Gaye retrospective. He kind of did what I did. He put together a group, uh, but he has singers. And so uh, I actually don't know exactly what he did, but what I've heard from everyone at the 92nd Street Y uh, that he put together a fantastic uh, program. So that's, uh, yeah, it's been a Marvin Gaye kind of life for the last uh, few months, curating all of this and uh, uh, saluting Marvin and his legacy and uh, specifically the 50th anniversary of what's going on. Marvin mania. That <laughs> dig it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That is fantastic. And I just have to uh, say, you know, thank you so much for having me be a part of that panel discussion. That was like a dream round table for me because it's an album that really defines my earliest memories of music. It's right in right. some of those, you know, earlier, earlier tunes. So thank you so much for, for that. My pleasure. My pleasure. When did you first hear what's going on? Um, I actually saw what's going on before I heard it. Um, it's a great story. My uncle, uh, Tony McBride Jr., um, all of all of the family and friends, we called him Butch, Uncle Butch. Uh, he was a um, promotions and advertising manager at WHAT Radio in Philly. And um, so along with the two bass players in my family, also had my uncle who was in radio. So um, my earliest memories were going over to his apartment and and just records all over the place. Just you you would be tripping over records, you know, uh, seven inches, albums, concert posters, flyers, the whole nine. And uh, I mean, what a time to grow up and have that sort of content just crowding my uncle's apartment you know it was, it was like going to an amusement park every week you know just seeing all of the albums and just all of the stuff that he had laying around but uh the centerpiece of all of the stuff he had in his apartment was a light was a was a wall size it took up the entire wall of the what's going on album cover whoa yeah yeah and um I'm I'm very sure it was made originally for a record store, I'm sure. But um, my uncle had it on his wall. And so every time you would go over his apartment, the very first thing you would see it was Marvin Gaye's eyes looking up, you know. And, um, you know, I, it's at, at first, you know, it, it was a little frightening because, you know, I'm like five and six years old. And I'm like, you know, who's that big man up on the wall, you know. And... Um, Certain songs is, is really hard to remember the first time you heard them because they just become such a part of our life. Um, it almost feels like it was always there, you know? Like, I almost, I almost don't remember the first time I heard what's going on because I feel like I always knew it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so, and, and the other thing, this is a story I don't tell too often. My mother claims that the first live concert I ever saw was Marvin Gaye at the Spectrum. She what? couldn't find she couldn't find a babysitter, so she took me, uh, my, my uncle Butch got got us tickets, and uh, you know she put headphones on me and everything, and so uh, I don't remember it, but apparently that's the first live show I ever saw. Amazing, yep. amazing, 
I love, I, I, the more you talk to me about your mom, I just, uh, I find her inspirational, you know? Oh, and, you, you, yeah, you guys are kindred spirits very much. Wow. I'm honored. I'm honored. And so I'd love to talk about, uh, and, and we talked about this a little bit on the panel. We were talking about the year 1971 and right. all of the sort of, foundational albums that came out as it pertained to social justice and social commentary and things like that. Although right. it's been happening years before leading up to that, the impressions, you know, but um, I wanted to ask you as the official number one fan of James Brown <laughs> <laughs> and someone who, you know, worked with him in, you know, a really monumental way, someone who's, you know, close to that, to that uh, that family, so to speak. What do you think uh, 1968, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. What do you think that particular song did for what came after it? Do you think that there was a, a turning point? Was that, a, was that a monumental shift for black consciousness in a way? I think so, because uh, by the summer of 1968, there was no one more popular and influential in the black community, certainly in terms of, of music, than James Brown. You know, um, the Temptations were hot. Diana Ross and the Supremes were hot. Aretha Franklin was hot. Uh, uh, Ray Charles was already a legend. Nina Simone was 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 a legend. But James Brown was the one that you know, he, he was the one black artist that could sell out Yankee Stadium in 1968, you know. Um, and so um, I think it's interesting that uh, if you look at um, the social climate in 1968, James Brown was all, almost, I don't want to say a holdout, but um, he made a song in March of 68 called America is My Home. And it wasn't, you know, it's, it's probably one of the few songs that James Brown actually had yanked from the record, from the record stores. I don't think a lot of people know that. Um, because basically he's talking about what a great country America is. Okay. And that, and that song wasn't out for maybe a week or two before Martin Luther King was assassinated. Whoa. And when that, and when that happened, James Brown was like, no get rid of that record, you know? And like, it quickly got buried, you know? And um, the whole thing, like by 68, you know, brothers were really embracing sort of their uh, their African heritage. So, you know, uh, brothers were wearing dashikis and everybody was going to a natural hairstyle. And uh, James Brown was still, he was still conking. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Up until like the summer of 68. So. Uh, the story is that, um, and, and it's a true story, people like H. Rap Brown and the Black Panthers, they started going to James Brown and was like, yo, what are you doing? You know, you, you're supposed to be soul brother number one. You know, why don't, why don't you really represent what we're trying to deal with? And James was kind of fighting them off, you know, but um, I think after um, King, was, King was assassinated, Robert Kennedy was assassinated. Um, and then the, uh, uh, you know, the, the riots that happened at the Democratic National Convention. 
Uh, I really think even James Brown was sort of like, you know what? Yeah, they're right. I need to get in there. So he monumentally, you know, shaved off his 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 conch, which was which was huge news in the black community. James Brown went natural, and uh, he came out with "Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud." The song became an instant anthem, and I really believe that the black community in general really sort of went okay. He's on board. Right. And for and for him to do such a visceral song, like Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, because, uh, you know, that there, there wasn't a lot of metaphor in that song. It came right out and said, and said it. Say it loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud. Period. And as we know, um, when it comes to descriptions and, and how we're represented, the word Black was not that was a hard word for we as black people to accept. Um, it was colored, it was Negro. And uh, you talk to people who were around at that time in the 50s, you know, 40s, 50s, and early 60s. Calling somebody black was almost like calling them the N-word. Right. You know, they didn't want to hear that. And then uh, through the, the radical social change that happened in the black community, that became not a curse, but it became the ultimate uh, 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 term of pride, you know? And uh, so when James Brown made Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, Black was a word that would be forever uh, linked with pride and dignity, you know? And uh, so I really think that while, um, like, as you mentioned, Curtis Mayfield, The Impressions, uh, Nina Simone, uh, a lot of uh, Atlantic and, and, and a lot of jazz artists too, because a lot of jazz artists have been on that whole thing for quite some time. That's um, right. But I think when James Brown did it, he really set the tone to say, like, okay, we're all going this way now. All of us are going this way. You wow. Know? Yeah, that that that's deep. Yeah, I I did not know that story about the the Ameri the sort of patriotic song right. that he had done right you know on the right before the assassination that is wow 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 and i'm telling you it, when i first heard that so because i remember reading about it before i heard it and i was like man I, that's funny because like when i first read about that song i i thought i heard most james brown songs you know and i sure. said oh, I, I gotta find america is my home i gotta find that and uh i think my man alan leeds sent me a uh a copy of the original 45. And uh, when I heard the lyrics, I was like, oh, it's a good thing James pulled this. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, we would later see him sort of walk that fine line of conservatism I... in his music, right? With That's I don't right. want nobody to give me nothing or um, That's right. uh, living in America. You know, this was someone who was often singing in a, in a, in a, in a patriotic vein, you know, um, whether that's right. Now, what side of that patriotism, you know, I think depended on the times. And I think that that was great that at a time where he's at the top of his game, uh, he was able to pause and really reflect and look at himself, let these leaders, that's right. you know, admonish him and, and, and be like, bro, this, this ain't it. You know, right. like you that's said, right. this is who you say you are this is not in alignment with that. And you got to right. go back to the drawing board. Yep, um, yep. I wonder, um, something came to mind recently. Um, 
and I'm going to kind of skip forward a decade to, to come back to make the point and sort of ask your thoughts on this. I was thinking about our era, right? Then the, the, where we, because when what's, what's going on was released before we were born, right? Not long right. before, right. before we came on the scene. But by the time we were around in the eighties, I was thinking about early eighties. I was thinking about those big anthems. We are the world, you know, the, yes. in a way it was like, in a way it was a protest song. It, it was, it was fluffy, but it was a protest song in a way, or even more, in your face, a song like Sun City, that, you know, anti, I ain't gonna play Sun City, that, that anti-apartheid song. That's right. You know, and we had these anthems, but, you know, I think about, you know, we had the benefit or the artists that were involved, I should say, had the benefit of looking to their left and looking to their right and seeing one of their contemporaries sort of reinforcing that. And then right. it's a mixed race, anthem right so you have we can't you know discount the fact that white um allyship quote-unquote or white endorsement of protest mm -hmm. music would soften it for society when we go back 10-15 years Marvin really didn't have the benefit of all of these other people sort of saying you know it wasn't a we are the world or you know we're coming together right. you know, it wasn't like uh soul stars against Vietnam, so to speak, you know, like right. this was really Marvin out there by himself on his own. And unlike uh, James Brown to where, and, and you can help me, you know, sort of refine this idea. Um, Cause to my knowledge, James Brown didn't really have any, I don't know of a friction between him and the label when he did Black and I'm Proud, but Marvin, not only was he out there by himself, that's but he right. had to fight to even get this album. Yeah, he had to fight his own team. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, by, I think by the time James Brown really said out of Black and I'm Proud, I mean, he basically was King Records. There, there was no one at King Records that was going to say, hmm, I don't think you should release that, James. You know, he was going to do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, however he wanted. But that was not the case for anybody at Motown, you know? And we even hear the stories about Stevie Wonder wanting to produce his own albums and him, and that being a really big point of contention just from that, you know? Exactly. He, he, he wasn't even specifically saying, I want to make a protest album. He just said, I want to produce my own records. You're like, well, Stevie, we got people that do that, you know? And Stevie's like, no, I don't need them. Thank you very much. <laughs> exactly and and i mean thank god they you know in both instances thank god there was some surrender because right. i mean look at these two giants that we're talking about what they were able to do creatively if it's like if you could just you know let me do me right i will, I will change the world which they you know which they both did Indeed, they did. You know, I'm, I'm really glad Barry Gordy stood down because, <laughs> uh, you know, everything became better by them doing what they did. You know, Stevie and Marvin, you know, the world became a, a, a much more, uh, I think it became, people really uh, became enlightened and educated as to what we were thinking and what we were feeling, you know. And it's funny because, like, I, when I think of that time in 1971, about, 
you know, the the one white artist I could think about that was really making bold political statements like that was John Lennon. And we all know he was getting flagged, you know? That's right. That's right. But I think it's, 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 I'm glad you brought him up because that brings to mind something else. And that is that I think, you know, as long as, and I'm not saying folk artists didn't have FBI files. They certainly did as well. You know, that kind of thing. Absolutely. But yeah. But I, I think that it, it, it is. Ironic. They knew that their, their audience wasn't as big as, uh, you know, Marvin or John Lennon or, or James Brown and those people, they, they weren't really, you know, the proverbial they. I don't think they were worried about the folk artists as much as they were the popular music artists. That's right. You know? That's right. Yeah. And so here's what's interesting, right? Marvin Gaye releases uh, That's the Way Love Is, 1969, and it has a gorgeous rendition of Yesterday, speaking of Lennon, right? right? And... Uh, Abraham, Martin, and John, and and um, Cloud Nine, he does. And then, but it's it's very much, there's some sort of political foreshadowing, but it's really another sort of just classic Motown, you right, know. the I, formula. I, it's the formula, right? Yeah. And two years later, around two years later, we've got, what's going on and in between there i think and i don't know the chronology off the top of my head but you know i know that tammy terrell dies his right um uh, his uh his muse as far as i that's was right concerned, and, and dear dear friend 24 years old uh passes and his brother goes to the war his brother goes to vietnam yeah. and there's this um He's in a depression. He's in a artistic crossroad because he doesn't want to sing about hearing it through the grapevine and right, you know, hitchhike and, and these love songs. Right, right, exactly. And so, you know, and this would be not the first in sort of a series of creative uh, crossroads that Marvin Gaye would have, but this one in particular is so profound because it shifts the way he records from then on out. Yes. And so what would you say, and I mean, this is a very, very broad question, but what would you say are some of the things from a, from a broader spectrum, because we're gonna get into the record more specifically in a few minutes, but like, what, what would you say um, in the grand scheme of things are some of the things that made this album so different and also just so profound for the time. This is, you know, the yeah. top of the seventies. Man, it's, um, you know, one of the things that uh, was really fun to get into on that round table was when uh, we were talking about how there seemed to be such a seismic shift in the creative style of so many artists, particularly black artists between 1968 and 1971, you know, um, obviously what was going on, um, socially, uh, not only in the streets domestically, but also the Vietnam war. I mean, that touched everybody in a very profound way. And yes, I think it would have been wrong not to, it, it would have been wrong to make music that didn't comment on that, uh, at the very least how you felt about it, you know, um, 
But Nelson George made an interesting point that um, by 1971, we start to see the beginnings of FM radio, Black FM radio. And while the signal wasn't as it didn't reach as far as AM radio did, um, the sound was better. You know, it was like it was like it was like high res audio at that time, you know. And um, because a lot of radio, particularly black radio, was not formatted at that time, you could play whatever you want. You know, there was no station manager saying, hey, look, don't play this Marvin Gaye track. You know, it's too political. Let's keep it safe. Um, there were a lot of black radio stations not just playing tracks for what's going on. They would play the whole side of what's going on, you know. And so I think that the, the main listening format for the average listener was growing as much as the music itself, you know. Uh, no longer were people listening to, like, mono recordings on AM radio. They were now listening to stereophonic recordings on FM radio, which you can hear those subtleties and those different dynamics in the actual recordings themselves. So uh, uh, an innovation that Marvin perfected with, with like uh, singing duets with himself, having the shadow voice, having the second lead voice. I don't think it, I, that wouldn't have worked on, on, on a mono recording or on AM radio. You just wouldn't have heard it the same way. You know, like Marvin's second voice is almost like you're conscious. You know what I mean? Because it's subtle, you know. So it's like it's the main voice singing to you, but then there's the the second voice, which is like his conscious, you know, your inner conscious that's also speaking to you while you're telling the story. So uh, I mean, it's 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 almost cinematic the way that movie was recorded, you know. And um, um, everyone else at that time, you know, Motown had taken a really drastic turn from like, I mean, even just '67 to '68 because Norman Whitfield had now become one of the chief producers and he was now bringing that James Brown, Sly Stone, Jefferson Airplane, Beatles kind of thing to Motown, you know? So, um, yeah, as you said, there was a lot of foreshadowing to what's going on. In fact, I believe the last duet that Marvin and Tammy released was the Onion song. And that has some uh, that has a very political social theme to it as well. So if people were really paying attention, they shouldn't have been surprised that an album like What's Going On came out. But I mean, Marvin just his his creativity, his artistic and creative vision was so tremendously expansive from what we'd heard from the previous releases of his. I mean, I I just can't imagine what it must have been like hearing that for the first time. You know, my God, my God. And that's the thing. So he comes to. So, yeah, let's let's get into um, a little bit of that backstory and then really kind of start honing in on the on the album itself, because so the story goes that. You know, Marvin Gaye is, again, at this crossroads artistically, his conscience is it, conscience is weighing on him. Right. And it's deeply important to him at this point to not be, quote unquote, just an artist, but to marry the art with activism to sort yeah. of, um, which is 
in a way like what the what the blues is and we know that you know Marvin Gaye was a fan of you know folks who had come before him who were right. you know, like we and we were talking about jazz and his association with that so he's in a lineage of a Paul Robeson a Billie Holiday like you said Nina Simone Max Roach Sonny Rollins Amen that's right all of these people and he realizes that I want to do this. This is I ha- not only do I want to do this. This is a calling on my life. We all know that Marvin Gaye was deeply, deeply spiritual, um, and this was something that he felt he was called to do. But when he brings the sing- when he brings brings the idea or brings the project to Barry Gordy, there's hesitation. Right. Right. I mean, you know, I, I'm guessing that as the businessman, you know, Barry Gordy is like, look, my company has a specific thing. With you making a protest album, you're messing with my business, <laughs> you know. And um, but again, like I said, Barry Gordy was smart enough to understand that this statement was bigger than his business, you know. Not was it not only was it bigger for Marvin and his fans and all of us who were listening, but it wound up being one of the biggest records in the history of Motown. So I mean, it was it was obviously good for business as well. <laughs> exactly, and I, you know? I think that's what happens because the, they he he fights Marvin Gaye at every turn. Somehow Marvin is able to push through, and they record the single. What's going right. on? And it's selling like hot blows up, blows up. And Barry's like, you got a, you got a whole album of this. Like, how can can you, (laughs) you got, you got eight more of these, you know? So now now he likes it. Exactly. And so I believe they record the, the rest of the album now in under a month. They right. com- they complete the the entire album and you know the rest is sort of history as they yeah, say, yeah. but let's just talk about the music. I remember, and of course I'm born seven years after the album comes out, but because of how monumental of a record it is, like Aretha's Young, Gifted, and Black, which was also a, a staple in my house, like. Uh, talking book or inner visions. Yes, these records were still hot when right. I, you know, when I was coming up. And I remember, you know, that gatefold album, you know, and, and opening it in that big collage that was in the middle yep. there. And because my parents were very, you know, similar to to yours, um, just music heads, so. The sound was so important. The acoustics were so important. We had a designated like music room, listening room. You know, that's, that's, that's killing. it was so hot. I really miss those days. And I remember that record being on, but I was alone. Like there was no one, you know, I don't know. Maybe my, my mom was busy in another part of the apartment or something like that. But um, I just remember everything that we find mystical and mythic about this album now it was i felt it then 
It was, mm-hmm. it was expanding my consciousness and elevating me in ways that I didn't understand as a child, but it was, it was teleporting me somewhere else yeah. that I would, you know, as I got older, I would catch up to, but let's just talk about that, that intro on what's going on. You put it on. The first thing you hear is, is, and I'm going to ask you about him specifically, but you hear, first thing you hear is James Jameson and that, and that conga, that first, that saxophone riff. What does that first, what does it feel? What does that mean to you? That opening when you first put that record on it. And actually I'm, I'm mistaken. The very first thing you hear is you hear dialogue. You hear brothers greeting greeting each other. Exactly. So right right in the gate, there's there is a um an entrance into the world of black culture from 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 a basic humanity from a hey man what's happening what's happening brother even before you hear a note that's right exactly so like what what do what is that just that intro that first few moments before marvin even starts singing what is that what did that what does that do to you when you Well, as you were so beautifully describing what it was like, you know, when that album teleported you to this 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 other place, uh, I think that by the time I heard um, what's going on, I'm pretty sure I had been familiar with uh, "Let's Get It On," you know. So I had heard "Let's Get It On," um, got to give it up. Um, probably a few of the Marvin and Tammy duets. Um, So I had been schooled on like real basic Marvin Gaye gems, right? And um, there was something specific about the reverb on what's going on that almost scared me as a little kid. You know what I mean? Because like, I don't know, like Got to Give It Up is a happy song. It's a party song. Yeah. Let's get it on is, you know, pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> um, but, like, what's going on, it, it demands your attention. It demands you to sit down and pay attention. And and I remember listening to, like, you know, I told you about that big life-size photo in my uncle's apartment. So, like, I'm looking at Marvin's face, looking up into the heavens. Mm. You You sort of see, like, these raindrops on his black leather coat. And then you hear this, you know, the brothers talking at the beginning, uh, this reverb. And I, I, as, a, as a kid, like, I was almost like, it was like, it almost feels like Marvin is sad. You know, it's like, this surely is not a party song. This is like, Mar- Marvin's got something to say. He's trying to tell us something. And, and like, you know, just as a kid, I'm thinking, I don't want him to feel sad. You know, it feels like he's he's like unhappy, you know. Yeah. And uh in 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 many ways he is unhappy. You know, he's he's feeling desperate trying to trying to find the answer to something, you know. And um but the way that album was mixed, the elements of it because it's uh you know, between James Jamerson and uh uh Eli Fontaine you know, there, there are some people who have played on his previous recordings, but they don't sound like that on those previous recordings. That's right. You know, And so uh, I don't know what it was, just the whole uh, 
the aura of that album. And, you know, it's like, um, and I'll tell you something else very specific. Now, this, this is some really nerdy musician talk here. Bring the it. very first chord, <laughs> the very first chord of what's going on is an E major seven. And I always found that in soul music, when you get a chord as pretty as an E major seven, it's generally a ballad. You know, I start thinking of like the stylistics uh, or, or like, uh, um, you know, uh, just some really beautiful ballad that starts out with these type of major seven chords. And when you get like a groove, like uh, like the rhythm section is playing what's going on, it's usually like a funk kind of thing, you know? So it's like this beautiful mixture of beautiful, pretty chords with the funk on top, you know, mm. with, with this reverb, you know? And I don't know, it's just, I mean, even now, like when I listen to what's going on, I mean, I, I guess sometimes the way you hear things when you first heard them kind of remain, you know? So, I mean, now I can listen to what's going on and, and listen to it from a lot of different angles, but the, the emotional effect of it is still the same as kind of when, when I first heard it as a kid, you know? Wow, yeah. In a, in a way, it almost makes me sad, you know? But, like, uh, I, I'm now able to uh, balance those, balance that emotion with, okay, I understand the musician in him. I now understand the context of how he made it and what else was going on at that time. So, it, it, you know, it makes me less sad, but nevertheless, it still kind of, it gets me right here, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. It is, it is melancholy. And, yes. And, and it's pensive. And, and the, those first two mother mothers, you know, you just, you yes. hear, you hear, a cry. I feel like you really do. And like you said, those pretty, you know, major seven chords and stuff, but it's, and then those, the, the strings are weak. Oh, well. you know, it's, it's, uh, they, you know, I'm, I'm hearing like the, you know, that they're long lines and yes, yes. you know, they're, they're very, da, 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 you know, they're, 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 they're so, I guess, legato and, and, yes, and exactly. they, they weep and, they're so beautiful and, and yep. they, like you said, the, the sort of multi-tracking uh, style that he had of um, tracking his vocals, which was, was started off as an accident, this, right, this right. doubling up of, of his voice, but how he, and, and to me, that's very church as well, the call and answer. Hello. You know, like you that's said, right. it's, it's his, um, his conscious, like you said, speaking to him and it's right. also, that that preach that preacher choir you know you know thing going on as well that you know somebody like I mean all the preachers would do but then somebody like Kirk Franklin would really just like popular you know <laughs> make, it, make it pop almost you know right, that, that, right. that sort of Pentecostal Baptist you know the volley that would happen there I and and another so obviously we we have to talk about the way the album has this cyclical uh one song sort of bleeding into the other this almost right. like a symphonic it's a suite, uh, it's a suite right. essentially yeah. and we, we really hear that 
especially it, it's really established like in the first three in the, in the first uh so from what's going on to to flying high not flying high, from what's going on to what's happening brother what's happening brother yeah there's a there's a bit of a break but it almost still feels like it's the theme carries over from what's going on into what's happening brother there you yeah. go exactly so in that way it still has that feel to it yeah um what's happening brother used to be my and it's still i always have a favorite track and like every couple of years or every few months right, right. but what's happening brother was one of my favorites for so long because as you said it it had that theme of what's going on but it it was it had a darker hue it was it yes. was it was getting the 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 color was 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 deepening it was we were really getting into you know marvin was giving this sort of panoramic view of the world being in an uproar and the danger zone is everywhere as as ray charles you know said in that tune right and now he's honing in on the specifics of what he's talking about and the first place he takes us is to this war vet who comes yes. home? Hey, comes, baby, woo! put you no good. Come on, come on, come on. Oh man, James on that. Oh my gosh. Anyway, um, he's he's home and he's trying to feel settled. He's trying yeah. to get rooted again, and. I, it's so brilliant in the way that Marvin has this person speaking in first person. He's not saying, yes. right? So he's not saying a man comes home and he he feels this way, he feels that way. He speaks it in first person and this person, you feel so sorry for him because yes. in his line of questioning, you know, are they still getting down where we used to go and dance? Will our ball club win the pennant? You know, you think they have a chance and tell me, friend, how in the world, you know, he's so he's trying so hard to to yeah. root himself, you know, back. I think that is one of the most brilliant yeah. songs ever. It, 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 it almost makes you want to cry, you know, yeah. um, it, 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 it's like the way he and you're absolutely right. The way he tells that story in the first person. Um, when we discussed this before, um, we had talked about how Marvin takes his pain and angst, but he somehow, I don't know, th there's a certain, there's a, there's a beauteous quality to what's going on. Like the album doesn't feel angry to me. Like you think of all of the subject matter in the album is things that made you know, gave them anxiety and 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 depression, and uh, you know, people were perplexed. You know, like what 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 in the world is going on, right? Yeah. But somehow, Marvin was able to take all of that and add his poetic and musical genius into it and turn it into something beautiful. Um, and yeah, what's happening? I mean, that's that's also one of my favorite songs, C certainly from a. Uh, a storytelling uh poetic standpoint it's just it's just it's superb it is so 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 superb and, and even when it does that little 
chromatic thing that when it goes down, uh, uh, like in Tell Me Friend, How in the World Have You Been, that part where it keeps doing yep, that. Sort of, yep. Oh, it's just luscious and just, it's so gorgeous. And, and, and the chord progressions on that song are as such that, um, you know, that's one of the songs that we played on our, uh, on our concert, on our pre-recorded concert. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's, a, it's a good song to play. You know what I mean? You can really sink your teeth into that. You know what I mean? From a, from a musical standpoint, you know, great changes, great melody. Um, I, I already did something unthinkable and actually sang the first lyric of the song, but uh, I'm not going to sing my other favorite part of that melody. But uh, no, 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 no. <laughs> okay, can you can you can you tell me what it is so I can hear it in my head? I mean, it's just like oh yeah, oh my God, Marvin, you're breaking oh, my heart, yeah. man. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, I mean, you just just that part alone, it, it feels Ooh. almost like uh, uh, um. You know, I could hear like Bird playing that. You know what I mean, or 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 Sunny or Miles. You know what I mean. You know, um, it's it's just um, it's just it's it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. It really is. And then even that part where it shifts and there's the uh, now I don't want to sing either, but that ooh, ah, <laughs> the, the what's been shaking up and down the line. I want to know because I'm slightly. I mean, right. That it it. It shifts. It's in one fell swoop. It it just it, it goes somewhere else. We're about to go into flying high in the friendly sky, and that change mm-hmm. it, it it just signals like. And even when he says, "What's been shaking up and down the line?" I want to know because I'm slightly behind the times. It yeah. It's it's wry. It's eerie. It's a haunting lyric, and right. and Marvin brings all the haunt of. So the time that has been lost for this brother, he brings that to the lyric and also to the music, the way it just, it shifts. And now we're going into flying high. It's, it's just, it, it's such a brilliant signaling that we're going somewhere, yeah. we're going somewhere real deep now. And, and, you know, I'm thinking about what you said about the way Marvin was able to take these subjects and not that he made the subjects beautiful, but the art that he right, made. Right. Them. When we hear flying high in the friendly sky, we're, we're dealing with addiction. We're dealing with an addict. He's, he's saying, he's, he's saying, listen, and we're, you know, he's, you feel compassion for this person. This person, uh, absolutely. this person is coping. This person is coping because when we think about our war vets, I mean, even now, but when we think about our war vets, especially the black ones, but overall in general, there was no, where was there, ther- you know, psychological therapy and, and social emotional support and PTSD support? Where was all of that? You know, sis, have you ever, have you ever been to a VA hospital? I have. And I, I got to tell you, I was really, there's a couple of things that really, you know, I, I, I try to control myself from being angry often because it's, it's easy to do in, in this world we live in. You know, I do my best to consciously be like Marvin or, or uh, 
or or Ellington and try to filter that or channel that into something positive. Because see, what I think about what, what, what what's going on, I actually think more people hear you when you deliver a message in a certain kind of way, you know? And I think that the way Marvin delivered the message of war and drugs, uh, uh, just everything that was going on in the black community at that time, uh, it, it really made everybody feel obligated to listen, you know, uh, in a in a much different way than Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud, you know, because Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud was in your face, fist raised to the sky, you know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas uh, Marvin, he tempered that a little bit with with this with these other elements of of compassion and empathy. The 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 message no less you know is not any less strong, but it just the the way he delivered it, you know. And, and there's a particular line in in uh, well before I talk about that line, the heroin epidemic was directly related to Vietnam because there was uh, obviously. Um, a epidemic of of heroin usage in the black community in in, in the forties, and and then it kind of tapered off a little bit, and then it spiked like like crazy around the time of the Vietnam War, you know. And uh, I'm sure you've seen that documentary, um, Mr. Untouchable, or Nikki Barnes. You know what? I have not. I yeah. Have- so so check it out. So there's there's one part in the documentary where they show specifically New York uh, uh, heroin related deaths in New York City from 1969 to 1975. They spiked every year. And I think by 1974, I I can't remember, uh, was it, I think it might have gotten to over a million uh, heroin related ODs, you know, um, in, in New York City alone. And um, I just cannot imagine what it must be like for a black man fighting an unjust war and you get hooked on heroin at the same time. Mm-hmm. And you come home and you can't get taken care of. You know, right. you just put your life on the line for this country, probably lost a leg, lost a, lost an arm, you hooked on heroin and there's no programs for you when you get home. And I will say all of this to say that when, you know, I, I've become a big fan of, I, I got, I can't remember the brother's name. Um, there's this guy on YouTube. I have to give him a big shout out. Cause I, I think I'm one of his biggest fans. Mm-hmm. Uh, he- Hezekiah, is that his name? Forgive me, brother. I'm going to, I'm going I'm to look you up. So I don't butcher your name. <laughs> um uh come on, where you at? Where you at? Where you at? Anyway, there's this brother who compiles Hezakia. I'm gonna spell his spell his name is H-E-Z-A-K-Y-A. Hezakia. Hezakia uh-huh. News and Films. He has a YouTube channel where he specifically compiles news stories from the late 60s and the early 70s, like old 60 minutes uh, 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 segments, uh, local news segments. And he 
posted a 60 minute story on uh, Vietnam war veterans who had gotten hooked on heroin. And uh, they showed this thing. I was not aware of this where Vietnam veterans protested at the state Capitol in 1971. And uh, you you should see it, sis. It, 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 It angers me because you see these cats out there that they're, they're hooked on heroin. Cats are in wheelchairs. Cats lost their arms. Cats lost their legs. And and uh, I can't remember if it's Harry Reasoner or Mike Wallace, whoever it is, uh, narrating mm-hmm. this story. And it's like they can't get jobs. They can't get into a drug treatment program. What are we doing? That's you know. Right. So like you know, e- even the even the white man in power in the news world is saying we're doing this wrong. You know. We, we need to help these soldiers, you know? That's right. So, so hearing a song like Flying High in the Friendly Sky, um, and then James Brown comes out a year later with King Heroin, it's just like, man, I just, I mean, for us, that would have been the crack era because, exactly. you know, because I, I can remember when crack did that to the black community in the, in the late 80s. And, um, oh man, I, I love telling, well, I don't love telling the story, but I just, uh, I know I have an angel over my shoulder. So I moved to New York City in 1989. And uh, this was just about at the peak of the crack epidemic. 1990, I believe, is the um, is the highest murder rate in the history of New York City. And most of it was related to crack. And I can remember when I first moved to New York, I'm all young and stupid. And I'm like walking around Manhattan all hours of the night. Cause I'm like, yeah, I got, I got to get my, I got to get my street cred. You know, I, I, right. wanna, I wanna learn the neighborhoods, you know. <laughs> New York I'm, City, just like I pictured. <laughs> I pictured, <laughs> I was totally that guy in, in living in the city, you know. <laughs> I'm walking around Times Square like, wow, right? why, why do people think this is so cool? Ain't nothing but like smut joints around here. I'm walking all around like 11th Avenue and, and knowing what I know now, yeah. I'm like, was I stupid walking around there? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was stupid. I was just lucky, you know. Ignorance but, is uh, bliss. Yeah. Ignorance surely is bliss. But yes, flying high in the friendly sky. I mean, I just um, and and also I, I think it's brilliant how Marvin used the metaphor for uh, uh, wasn't that like Eastern Airlines motto, flying high in the friendly sky. Oh wow! Delta. Yeah, it, that that was you know, an official motto for one of the airlines. It sure time. was. It was something about the friendly skies. It wasn't a. That's right. It, it, TW. It, it might have been. I don't remember. You're right. You're absolutely right. and flips that exactly and turns it. into something. Oh else. man, that, Marvin was so bad. Man, so bad. He says, "I go to the place where the good feeling awaits me. Self destructions in my hand. Oh Lord, so stupid minded." And I can't go crazy. And I go crazy when I can't find it. It's yes, like, yes. What? It's like you. But soon the night will bring the pains. It's like, oh my mm-hmm. God, that's that hits me. You know? Yes, yes, yes. It's like you feel like you said because especially when you know we think about now and the opioid addiction and how much empathy is in the narrative, but that empathy yeah. is never in the narrative when. It's black folks who are who are struggling of course with not. addiction. And so I just it's just such a brilliant things only become an epidemic when it hits the white community. Exactly. Yeah. Point blank period. 
other than that, it's just some black folks in trouble yet again. Yet again, exactly. <laughs> right. And then uh, it goes into it goes into save the children. It's in the same. I think it's in the same key. Yep. Yep. It goes into to that. Da, 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 da. Yes. It goes into this. Now this really feels like church because you know he's he's doing the call and answer thing you were talking about. They'll come. Now he's talking. Now he's talking. Now he's preaching. Right. Now. Now he's preaching. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, 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 the, and and he's the preacher and the choir. You know, they'll come yes. time when the world won't be singing, flowers won't grow, and the and the bells won't be ringing. Who really cares? And I think what's so brilliant about this song is that. We know about Marvin, you know, we've, we either talk about the sanctified or the sexual, right? Or, you know, right. but here, and even in his, in his activism, we hear him singing about children, mm-hmm. which is so mm-hmm. tender to me. You know, he's really, he's, he's thinking about what are we leaving? What is going to be the inheritance? And when you listen to what he said and you look at us now, yeah. It's just, I think that that part of what made his commentary so stunning was that he really understood the urgency yeah, of that message. Yeah. If we don't get this shit right now, right? What are we? He's, he, he's talking about us because we were the babies that he was talking about needed to be saved Hello. at that time. You know? Hello. So he's talking to our parents, like, yo. Get it together, you know. That's right. We, we need to fix this for them, you know. Um, and you mentioned this also on the um, on the on the roundtable. There's parts of the song that is just straight up jazz, you know. And um, I think this is where mu- Marvin's expansive musical range really takes shape because you know we talk about his. Uh, his poetic genius, uh, his his musical genius, you know, his 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 deep sense of of harmony and things like that. But rhythmically, this song is very different from everything else on the album. Yes, know? and frankly, I think it's uh, much different from what any of his peers were doing at that time. That's right. You know, I think right. a lot of jazz musicians at that time were feeling pressured to make more groove or funk oriented grooves. Whereas Marvin is like, ah, I'm gonna shout y'all out. Ain't, ain't nothing wrong with swinging. I'm gonna get That's, in there with y'all. You know? <laughs> right, exactly. Because even the, the way that song drives before it goes into that that swing, right. I think it's in like a, a six eight kind six, of- Six eight thing, That's right. drive thing that happens. And then one of my favorite moments on that song uh you know after that you know that whole drum solo happens and it, he really takes it up and then he goes but you know and it comes back down what james jameson is playing on that part <laughs> oh my god so i just want to pause for a second and kind yeah. of shift gears for just a second to talk about you as a bassist who is you know the preeminent basis of your generation. I'm the preeminent basis in this chair. Oh, <laughs> if you don't stop. What, 
your your perspective, and, and this is one of the many reasons I wanted to talk to you about what's going on, is because James Jameson is so out front on this oh. album from a musical perspective. What what can we say about his role in terms of? Um, can you break down sort of from a harmonic standpoint, like? why it it's so mind-boggling that the way yeah. he's playing and what he's playing he's not playing he's not just keeping the time he's not just playing you know some nice right tone. he's I mean it's so intricate and uh what can what can we say about I mean, I mean really um you know the the Fender bass guitar the the Fender electric bass guitar um to my knowledge, was first used uh, in the early 50s. Um, Monk Montgomery, Wes Montgomery's older brother, played it in Lionel Hampton's band. And uh, he recorded on it in, I believe, 1952 or 1953. But he was playing it in a very, stylistically, was still coming from an upright bass standpoint. You know, he's walking bass lines, you know, and... Uh, a lot of early rock and roll was based on swing rhythms, you know, uh, all that little Richard, Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley. It was all still kind of coming out of like the swinging, almost New Orleans type of thing. But when you start to get into Motown and you start to get into this straight eight sort of like, you know, now, now what we call, you know, sort of like funk rhythms. Yep. James Jameson really did write the book on that. You know, he he created a whole style of electric bass playing. He he almost single-handedly took it out of like the way Monk, Monk Montgomery introduced the instrument to uh, a lot of audiences. But like I said, what he was playing would be the things that you would hear played on an upright bass. Um, but James Jameson really he literally created a whole new language for mm. the electric bass with Motown. And um, the fact that he was trained as a jazz musician, so he had um, uh, rhythmic sophistication, he had melodic sophistication, um, he had harmonic sophistication. So hmm. I listened to, uh, you know, I, I, I've seen, um, like the, there's that great documentary on Motown that came out just a couple of years ago. Yeah. And they talk about how, you know, they didn't give, James Jamerson actual bass parts. They just gave him chord sheets. Make up, make up your own part. You know what to do, you know. And so literally everything he played set the tone for James, uh, I'm sorry, for, for Larry Graham, Bootsy Collins, uh, Tommy Cogbill, all the guys that played in on, on Atlantic, uh, Chuck Rainey, uh, uh, Jerry Jamat, uh, all of these cats they had to listen to James Jameson for, for their reference. Oh, so this song is supposed to be kind of funky. Huh? Let me go put on a Motown record and hear what James Jameson is doing. Now, James Brown's music was different because he sort of set the, the, he set the standard for a particular style of funk, but not bass playing in funk. Mm -hmm. James, James, James Jameson really set the standard for that, you know, mm -hmm. um, and if you really pay attention to what James Jamerson plays on um, uh, Save the Children, 
or any other Motown record for that matter. And, and I was telling somebody this and, and, and I in no, in no way, shape or form want to be disrespectful, but I'm a, I'm a huge Jocko Pastorius fan just as much as the next bass player. Sure. Jocko, he, he's on my, my personal Mount Rushmore of electric bass players. But Jocko Pastorius is a, res, is a result of James Jamerson, Larry Graham, Bootsy Collins, Tommy Cogbill, Chuck Rainey, everybody I just named, you know. Uh, he, he gave Jocko something to listen to. And of course, Jocko was his own brilliant mind and he filtered all of that into a sound of his own. But like, if you really pay attention to that stuff, you think to yourself, oh, I see where Jocko got all of this from. Okay. It's not, you know, you got to tell a lot of these bass players, no, Jocko did not create all of this in a bubble. <laughs> he listened to James Jamerson. Thank you very much. Thank you know, and so, uh, you know, Jamerson is just really, um, you know, um, if there's a Bible on soul bass playing, he's the book of Genesis. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. It's it's so it's so innovative. And I love how in the mix, he's so upfront yes. with, with Marvin. It's almost like a third voice. It, it's another, he's another griot in the story. Absolutely. Big Just, time. It, it's it's phenomenal. One of my favorite, favorite parts in that song is when you know, Marvin's doing the whoa, 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 ba, 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 that part. And it's yeah. going from like, it's like E minor seven to D minor seven. It keeps going yep. back and forth. Doing yep. that. And then that glissando and it goes into that B flat sus into freaking God is love. It's just like, <laughs> it almost feels like, and I, this is, this is PG. So I'm going to think about how I can say this, um, <laughs> but it's almost like, Marvin takes you to a the, a height, the highest yes. in the in that in that uh, E minor D minor thing, yep. and then yep. just when you feel like it's been it's bliss, it's like the heavens open on yep. that on that B flat uh, uh, sus, and it's just and oh, it goes deep. into that that God is love thing. Oh. Yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. It, for me, it's probably like the last minute or two of Save the Children into God is Love is one of the most euphoric experiences that you I can have on a record. That That's the part. word for it. That's the word, euphoric. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, I got something for you. I'm going to reveal this. I don't want nobody breaking in my house when I tell you this, but I, uh -oh. have, to, I have to tell you this. So you've seen the video of... Um, of Marvin doing Save the Children Live, right? I have that album. I have it on vinyl. Do you have the movie from where that comes from? No, the Stan Latham video. You have it? Bro. <laughs> Bro. Okay, got, so. Got the whole, I got the whole gig. Okay, so when we're, when we're done here, <laughs> You and I are going to have a conversation. <laughs> Man, to hear what? the whole set as it as as it happened in the film. For, first of all, it was so 
it, it, it not only is the film itself, the, the film is called Save the Children. Yeah. And uh, it's basically um, the, uh, it's Jesse Jackson's Push Black Expo 72. And um, Marvin makes an appearance with the Motown band. And the, the they, they didn't really play a lot of gigs outside of Detroit. And so that's the reason why that that film is so, um, is such a gem because there you are, you can actually see James oh. Jamerson playing live. That's right. Know, that's right. Along with Eddie Bongo Brown. Yeah. And tuxedos, you know, and uh, it's, it's, it's just, it's absolutely stunning to, to watch the man play. You know, yes. and not only is he up front in the mix, but he's like, he's up front with Marvin. You know, he's like right, right next to the piano. You see Marvin Gaye and you see James Jameson right there. You know, it's like, yeah, Mar Marvin knows what a genius that man was. That's right. It, it wouldn't as brilliant as it is. And, and I mean, this with the utmost respect. It just without James on that record it's a, mm -hmm. it's a it's a different it's a different record it's that's right that's because right because he's he's almost like and, and bob uh, and bob babbitt's a bad man also i'm gonna give him his props sure but sure. yeah i mean but but james james jamerson said he set the he, he he set the template oh i mean without a doubt just like you said his his harmonic sophistication the choice of yeah what to play what notes to play how to just sweeten or 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 darken or color or move or oh wow that note right there changes the whole complexion of this chord kind of thing like it would right it, that's it's right genius yeah that's right that it's a whole like I can literally and I know I'm a nerd but I can literally just sing down the bass from the top of the record to the bottom. I don't need those. I don't need the strings. I don't need anything else. Like, ah! I literally, like just, just give me James Jameson. And that's bass like, and Marvin. Just bass and Marvin. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we got to have Marvin. But it's, right. just, um, it's, it's insane. It's insane. And, okay, so then we get into God is Love. And so this is not the first version of God is Love, right? So right. The, the first version is... Uh, this version feels a little more Motown. Right, it, right. It slowed down, the doo -doo 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 -dee, you know, and it's, it's got that, it's got that two-step, you know, yeah, 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 right. to it, you know. <laughs> and um, uh, actually one of my son's favorite Dilla beats is when he sampled that first version of, of God is Love, um, the breakdown, when he's like, love you, mother. And it's, and it's right, doing that, like right. talking over himself, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so that if you guys want to check that out, that's that's beautiful. But this version is actually my my favorite. It's 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 up tempo. It's you know it's it had it, you know you hit a tambourine. Right. That's right. Know? That's right. For the first time, it has that. It's 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 really church. Yes. That, that version of of God is love. And another thing I think is interesting is that it sits kind of in the middle of the album. Yes. And, and doesn't that feel in a way sort of metaphoric? Because mm -hmm. if you could talk a little bit about, you know, God, Marvin often talked about this album being an album that was deeply spiritual as well. Yes. Yes. Well, we all know Marvin's history with um, his very complicated and uh, ultimately 
tragic history with his father, you know, and um, the whole history of black singers, male or female, that grew up in uh, households where, you know, they were preachers in the house. He were raised to be strict believers in the Bible. A lot of old school parents, grandparents, they took it very seriously when you sang music that anything other than the gospel music, you know. Um, we all know how Marvin's dad was deeply disappointed when uh, he decided to sing secular music. Um, same thing happened with Sam Cooke. Same thing happened with Bobby Womack. You know, these people were pretty much ousted in their whole in their own families because they decided to sing secular music. Uh, fortunately, I mean, I, I guess you could say fortunately, Aretha Franklin is one of the few examples where, you know, her preacher father was like, look, baby, you go sing what you want to sing. I got your back. Right. Yeah. You know? And that that was an extremely that was an extremely rare occurrence at that time for, for that generation. You know, so um, part of me, you know, I mean, I believe that Marvin writing God is love is, um, you know, I don't want to say that's him addressing his demons because that that was a part of him. Obviously, you know, that's his background. You know, that's that's what his mom and dad taught him, particularly his dad. But um yeah, I mean the whole, the whole um, sacred versus secular. That that was a theme in Marvin's music for the for the for his entire life, you know. Um, but yeah, it, it is interesting that this this album. I mean this this particular track sort of. I, I don't want to use the word halftime, but mm -hmm. you know. You know, it's sort of like, like you said, it's kind of more of the classic Motown sound and, you know, um, with the tambourine and things like that. But um, it, it certainly, I, I think it fits well in, uh, in terms of, of not just the themes of the time, but Marvin's personal themes as well. Absolutely. You know? And I yeah. think it's even the first time we hear trumpets. It feels very... Gabriel, you know, I mean, it's so <laughs> beautiful, you know, and just with right. again, what James is playing under there, that that driving drum, it's so funky. It's so right. entirely funky. And it's another thing I think is so important about that track is that Marvin Gaye is not just indicting America from a human rights perspective. He's saying, okay, Christian nation. Yeah. You know, if this is what you proclaim to be, and if this is foundational to this country, what you're doing is not only wrong from a moralistic, humanistic, uh, you know, standpoint, but That's this right. is but this is spiritually an abomination as well. Yeah, yeah. And I, that that's not lost on me when I when I hear that song. It's it it really feels like an a, a higher power indictment, if you will, of 
you know, if this is who you say you are, well, this mirror of who I say, you know, all he asked of us is we give each other love. If that's don't if go that, and don't don't go and talk about my father. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> come on. God is my friend and God mm -hmm. is on the side of right. And are yep. you America going to get on the side of right? Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I it's 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 such a and then when he with the, just the way it ends, oh my gosh. Um and when we call on him for mercy, he'll be merciful, my friend. Oh yeah. Ooh, all he asks of us, I know. The, the, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Uh, yep. And then the, you know, I'm singing in the wrong key, but just and then the then mercy, mercy me comes in. It's just like again, it's yeah. one of those moments where it's like the high, just when you don't think you can get any higher. It's like here's That's another level right. of, you know, elevation kind yeah. of. Yeah. Now I can't remember. Um, because I've been listening to it on CD or, or digitally for so long. Is that the last song on side one? I'm not sure. I literally was thinking about that today. I yeah, said, yeah. When you flip it over, what, what song starts? I think the ecology does start. No, that can't be. They wouldn't have broken it up like that, would they? No, I don't think so. Wait a minute. Uh, I gotta look that up. Yeah, I literally thought about that today. I said, I can't remember. It might be right on then. Or is that too late in the album for the let's see, let's uh, uh track listed. Yeah, it's the next to last. Yeah, it's God is love into mercy, mercy me in side one. Right. And then right on, and then right on starts side two. That's what I thought. That's yep. what I thought. I yep. said it might be a little late, but that makes so much sense. Right, right. You you gotta go from God is love into mercy, mercy me. That's yeah, I got to. You gotta have that experience. <laughs> <laughs> and then, I mean, what can we say about that song? I have to admit that mercy, mercy me. It's never been like the one for me. Um, right, right. But it is. It is the one. I think that. I think that is the one for for most people is Mercy Mercy Me. It's that song just it's a classic. It just well, you know, think about like you know the subtitle of that song, the ecology. In, in a way, Marvin is dressing uh, addressing climate change. That's right. You know, so again, here's one of these subjects that is 50 years old, and we're still talking about it. You know. We're just talking about it. When you right. think about it, he was right. so far ahead of us to where, because right. now we talk about climate change. People act like we're talking about something totally taboo. It's only now becoming okay to kind of. Hey, talk look, about I, I, we remember how how crazy people thought Al Gore was for talking about this twenty one years ago. That's you know? right. So, I mean, you know, it, uh, obviously neither one of them were wrong. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, I, I think that when we think about climate change, that's also a subject that is racialized in a couple of ways, because like absolutely, Black people, when we think about it, no one was singing about climate change before Marvin Gaye. Not with that level of specificity. Are you kidding me? Absolutely not. Period. But it's become sort of co-opted by white activism. You know, like mm -hmm. like white folks are the only ones care for the planet. When we think about indigenous cultures, 
that's the whole point is to take care of the planet. You know what I mean? So, so the black and brown and indigenous folks have been globally trying to take care of this planet for a long time. And Marvin's one of the first to really, you know, talk about people, that. People think I, people think I'm trying to be funny when I say that uh, historically speaking, black people have always deeply respected nature. That's right. You know, there's certain things, I mean, look, you can say what you want to about explorers. Okay, yeah, I'll give you that. But I think Black people inherently know that this is really not, like, Mother Nature is is, is bigger than us. You know, we, we need to take care of the planet so she, Mother Nature, and Mother Earth will take care of us. Yeah. You know, I, we've always known that, you know. Right. And, and, you know, we hear, you know, like, I, like I know the term, uh, fracking became big, you know, a couple of years ago. And I think all of us that respect uh, the earth, we're like, mm, can't you find a better way to, to, to deal with this? You know, um, stop uprooting the earth. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean? exactly. <laughs> exactly. And Marvin, stop, was- stop, 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 stop messing with food, you know, genetically, you know, uh, altering it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, you go to some of these, you go to some of these places, and they're always in the black community. You go to these places where you get like, you know, like uh, what not not Kentucky Fried Chicken, but like one of them like like Kansas Fried Chicken or something like that, right? <laughs> and, and, and and they give you a chicken leg that's as big as mine. That's right. right. <laughs> now anybody with good sense is looking at that like I ain't never seen no chicken that big before right, in my whole right. life. Right. Something's not right. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, I think about, and matter of fact, the Times did a great piece on this. uh, It was either like the end of last year or early this year when they were talking about Black people being disproportionately affected by the pollution because they have Black folks living next to chemical plants. Yeah. Yes. You, you read you read that right and like dumping yep. toxic waste where we live and all that kind of stuff and so when you think about what Marvin was saying about the social injustice the drug infiltration I think he also understood that we were being disproportionately affected by yeah. how you know the earth was being treated and so yeah I, I there's think- so much information you know the 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 it's so beautiful, sis, that we get to talk about these songs individually because it really, you know, Marvin is almost like a Nostradamus yeah. in that, you know, he's he's talking to us about this stuff that they they obviously they meant something then, but they still mean something now. You know, it's like uh again, we asked that question, what's going on? You know? Yeah, exactly. And and it's it's so so I'm glad you said that. Do you think that what's going on was more of a question or do you think it was more of a statement as in a dissertation or do you think it was a play on both? What do you, what I do you think? It was a play on both. I, I believe it was a play on both. You yeah. know, uh, I, obviously, I think it's, it's, it's a person standing in the middle of the world and looking at everybody going, you know, what are you doing? What's going on? You know? Mm-hmm. Like, 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 you know, like a parent walking into a room and the, and the kids done messed up the room. You're like, 
what's going on here? You know? Yeah. yeah. And then you have like uh, the, the, the brother in, in what's happening, brother, you know, who's asking the question literally, you know? Yeah. So I, I think it's a play on, uh, on, on, on both. Yeah. Yeah. I've often tossed that around my mind because I think when the narrative becomes too much, like, you know, Marvin was asking a question, I'm like, I don't think there was any artist more profoundly clear about what was going on. And so I think that, yeah. you know, there, there was, he, there was this question. I think what he wanted us to do was ask ourselves some hard questions. Mm -hmm. you know, he, yep. I think he wanted America to ask him itself hard questions and what's going on. Cause even in the, on the vinyl, there's no question mark next to what's going right. on. Right. Right. So right. Like, right. This is, it's also, like you said, it's, it's, it's both. It's like, let me tell you what's going on too and open your eyes and you decide. I think the question comes in when it's like, well, what are we going to do about this? What yes. Do do? Now that. Hey, this is funny. Guess who just sent me a text? Who? Jan. No way. <laughs> oh, her so ears must be ringing. I'm going to write it back and say, we're talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right on. Um, you know, I must admit that I always just kind of danced to that one. And I never really took the time to delve into, I mean, it's such a bad tune in that bass line. I gotta tell you, that's always been that's probably my second favorite song on the whole. I, I mean, I, I it's hard, you know, right. but it's uh it's certainly in the top three with what's happening, brother, and and what's going on, of course. I mean, I gotta put inner city blues in there too, but that groove on right on makes me feel like Marvin had been spending a little time in the Bronx. Hey, you know? now. <laughs> my hometown. It's almost got a, it's almost, it's, it's almost got like a little nod to the New Yorican thing on there, you know? I love that. Yes. Yeah. You know, with, with the, with the flute and, 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 the, and that cowbell, you know, it's got, it's got like a little Latin thing in there, you know? Yes. And it's like, oh man, they, they, they grooving on. And, 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 and like, so I remember when I first heard it, um, and Marvin's just kind of freestyling, you know, vocally in the beginning, I remember thinking, oh, okay, they just jamming, right? Uh -huh. And uh, and then eventually he he starts getting into something. I thought, man, this this cat is just blowing my mind track by track, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's such a bad tune. Just like you said, that groove. It's the first tune for me where you want to kind of cut, you want, you know, you can, you can, that, that's, that song is, is for the club. It's yes. for the, for the, for the, uh, the, the protest line. It's for, it's for everything. It just, it has that. That's like, right. And you can, you can salsa and merengue to it. You can, you know, <laughs> groove to it. It just has that. Ooh. Oh man, that, that groove is fit. That's one of the songs we played on that Friday concert as well. Oh, nice! Oh, 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 man, we had to play that, and I, you know, I gave, I gave the drummer some on that because it's the perfect song for that. 
Yes, I logged on and you guys were doing what's going on and it was over. So I said, I have to catch the replay. So I'm, I'm going right, to. I'll, I'll, I'll send it to you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I got it. I got because I came in. I had a feeling it was almost over, and I, and it and it was. But I would I would love to hear that. Um, oh man, that's I love that song. It's so and, good. And of course, that was the catchphrase. For right on. All, all, all those all those black folks at that time, you know. That's right. Uh, speaking of my uncle Butch again, um, he also gave me my uh, he taught me my first soul shake. <laughs> really like that yes yeah no kidding when, when uh when when uh there were two shakes that he he uh he taught me um it was like uh we went right on love right? it <laughs> and then the other one was uh uh slap me fire on the black hair side hey in the in the hole uh-huh you got soul. <laughs> I love it. I love oh, it. My, would... my uncle Butch was so down, man. I wish you could have met him. Me too. I, I I do too. I do too. And the way you describe him so vividly, I just I really do too. I really do. But you you will definitely meet my mom one day, I'm sure. I would love that. I really, really, that has to happen. That's crazy that it hasn't happened yet, but we're going to make that happen. Yeah. Um, holy, holy. It's it's a benediction of, of yeah. it feels yes. like, because he's, he's taken us through all kinds of highs and lows and places and transported us and filled us with the Holy Ghost and everything else. And the, I mean, just in this conversation alone, we've been everywhere. And, yeah. and then that one um, makes me think about what you said earlier, but, but just in a different way of how, you know, yes, he sang secular music and, and like in Aretha. That was interesting in the Amazing Grace movie mm -hmm. when James Cleveland is kind of like, I'm, he, he kind of, defends Aretha before she comes out. Like, you know, like she's still yes. one of us. Right, kind of right. Thing, which kind of tells you that even though she might've had it, she had that support, there was still that judgment. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh thing, yeah. You know, which I is- I mean, her, her own father had to do that as well. When he tells the story about, uh, 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 um, when he said, um, he ran into a sister in Detroit and and the sister said, it's a shame little Aretha has left us, you know, something like that. Yeah. And uh, uh, Reverend Franklin said, uh, sister, let me tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember if that was in the film, but it's definitely on the record. Uh-huh. Um, he's like, uh, Aretha has never left, sister. Let me, let me explain to you. She never left. That's right. You know? That's right. That's right. Yeah. And she opens the show with Holy Holy. Right. Just yep. two, two years later. I think Amazing Grace is 73. And so- 72. Oh, 72. Okay. Yeah. So yep. yeah, just the following year. Just the following year. Yeah. Yep. And, and so it becomes a, a anthem, so to speak, by the time Marvin does it and then Aretha covers it, it's a, it, it becomes a gospel classic. Just like- Yes. That. Just like- Yes. Oh. 
Marvin's just he's knocking down so many pins on on this album, man. Just socially, spiritually, um, musically. Mm. Uh, I mean, it really is uh, just a perfect album in so many ways. Absolutely. And more and more than anything else, the music is great. Just the music is great. Ooh. You know. Yeah, David Van de Pitt's uh, strings on "Holy Holy" too are just. Man, oh my gosh, they're just incredible. We got to find out more about him. Yeah. Is he still with us? If he is, where is he? Where is he? Yeah, yeah. Man, a lot of great arrangers from that time just didn't get enough of props, didn't get enough props for what they did. You know, David Van De Pitt, um, Johnny Allen, who who was from Detroit, who wrote all those great arrangements for Isaac Hayes. You know. Oh, okay. Yeah. And um, you know, Tom Bell, my homie. Oh man. Oh, man. <laughs> and who we spent time, you, you graciously came on my show last time to talk about Charles Stepney. Yes, Charles Stepney. Paul Reiser is oh, another yeah. one, another great Motown writer. Oh yeah. Um, so many great writers. You know, we we ain't even gonna go down the Quincy yeah. Jones, Oliver Nelson alley. Oh but, man. Um, Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I want. I want to find out more about Brother Van de Pitt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What? Wh- who? How did Marvin? Uh, did Marvin handpick him? What was their association? How did that come together? Um, and I know. I know David Van de Pitt did some writing for the Tips as well. Okay. Um, I can't remember if it was him. I think it was Paul Reiser that did uh, "Just My Imagination" because those are some other legendary string arrangements oh, on there as well you yes, know indeed. yes indeed but and yeah holy holy is just um what what uh, another brilliant brilliant track those changes oh they're so pretty they're so yeah so so pretty and yeah and you hear marvin the 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 prophet well you hear him as a prophet on the whole album yeah but, you know on that track itself it's so oh it's I have no words. And then, it <laughs> and it closes with Inner City Blues, which is another track that is just so prophetic. Yeah. And and sadly, uh, those lyrics have never been more um, apropos. Yeah. It talks about that trigger happy policing and. Oh my gosh! You know, I can't pay my taxes. That's right. You know, That's right. Uh, but you know, that was another one of those songs that when I first heard it, because of the reverb, you know, it's like, you know, you, you get that E flat minor chord and, you know, boom, 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 boom. And then when the, when the cool goes coming, boom, boom, And like that, that reverb, like, you know, as a kid, I was like, Oh, this is scary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. It's it's very ethereal, like you said, that reverb, and it, it's it doesn't feel happy because it's not. They right. Talk, it's, it's not. Yeah. And then Babbitt, ba doom doom Just that groove. Oh my gosh. It's it's just it is just such a bad tune man oh my goodness i and- heard somebody gave me um 
I have some of the stems from what's going on. Uh-huh. And I was able to hear, like, on, on the recording that we all know so well, there's some, there's some horn parts that you can't hear that well because they're buried in the mix. It, it really added to the, 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 the atmosphere of that song. Yeah. But like actually getting to hear those those horn parts kind of clearly mm-hmm. uh, makes me love that song even more. Wow. You know, it's, it's pretty heavy. And the string parts, you know, oh, my gosh. Um, yeah, it's just um, it, it puts something on your mind emotionally, you know. Yes. Yes. And even so, the way he approaches it from a lyrical standpoint He's saying one or two words. Yeah, right. Right, exactly. like it's it's not a, a flowy lyrical. It doesn't. It's 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 not that kind of thing. It's almost um, maybe like a poem because I can't. It's not like hip hop. It's not like it's not like anything. Right. He's saying one word for over four beats. Right. That's <laughs> right. That's right. Yeah, it's like. And and they they hit you like that. I and that that's the brilliance of it too. Rockets, moonshots. That's right. And it, like, it gives you that's right. Yeah, yeah, it gives you the subject, you know. Yes. I think if any song where we do hear, and it's interesting that it's the song that closes the album, even though there's that little kind of refrain that goes back to the beginning before it ends. Right, right. The song closes with the angriest we hear him. Yeah. Even though he's in his falsetto, it there's still yeah. you, you hear you hear the the frustration. Oh yeah. You oh hear, yeah. We say it makes me want to throw up both my hands, makes me wanna I can't take this, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it it's sort of a um I don't know, but you know, again, like you're absolutely right. It's it's, it's that's the most frustrated we hear him on a recording, but I don't know, something about that. Um, I get that message much. It, it hits me so strongly. Mm-hmm. I think because of the musical, the music itself brings the message even more directly to your heart than, at least for me, it did. Just, you know, like the the the, the congas and, and, the, and the reverb. It's like, Something about those lyrics get into you a little deeper, you know. Yeah. Um, I don't know, man. Mar- Marvin is just a uh, just just a um, just a genius. Um, um, that that album just it's like kind of blue, you know. It's, it's going to be one of those albums that uh, its relevance and its meaning and its greatness is just going to continue to grow. Yeah. It's 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 classical music. It's black classical music. Oh man, I mean, I, I don't know what to say after that. That 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 is exactly what it is. You know, it reminds me, like we were saying on the panel, it just it mar it it marries. You know, when I think about the Christianity that he comes from, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, that Trinity. It's right. Like, this album has a trinity as well of like it's the artistry, the music, the spirituality, uh-huh. the and then the, activism and the narrative. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. Exactly. Right. Exactly. It's like this trinity, 
under this umbrella of this deeply ancestral tradition of the blues. Talking Ooh, about- come on now. <laughs> Absolutely right. I mean, that it, it's just stunning. It's just, it's just stunning. Well, Christian, I, I thank you so much for coming on and joining me to talk about this album. Um, you know, we well, talked about you know I love talking with you, sis. We we could we could riff on all kinds of music for days on end. That's right. That's right. And so I just, you know, would implore everyone listening to, you know, revisit this this landmark album and as my brother said earlier, whether Rolling Stone or whoever says it's the greatest or not, it right. is the greatest. <laughs> and it um, it's just one of those special, there's no way that Marvin was wrong when he said God didn't have his hand on that. Because it feels like that. It sounds like that. It, Indeed. It, Indeed. It yeah. So thank you so much. I'm your host again, Angelica Wiener, and we will see you next time. When are we doing this again? I know, right?